welcome to The Swiss Connection, a Swiss Info production. I'm your host, Susan Masika. We're back with our special series exploring the link between nostalgia and homesickness. We've been hanging out with Dale Bechtel, one of my Canadian colleagues here at Swiss Info. Dale took us back in time to discover that the term nostalgia all started in Switzerland, thanks to the curiosity of a medical student back in the 1680s. It started me on this whole nostalgia trip, and I wanted to know what was at the root of nostalgia. And I wanted to know, does it have something to do with homesickness? But does it even make sense to be living in the past? To be sitting around pining for another place or another time? So for this third and final episode of our series on nostalgia, let's head back to Dale's house overlooking Lake Toon in the Bernese Alps. He and I have been talking about what sparks memories, and he started singing this 1970s song by Steely Dan called Reelin' in the Years. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time? Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time? Are you gathering up I was definitely hearing a song I haven't heard in decades that was really part of uh, my growing up. So you're nostalgic for that song? Well, not really the song as much as it is as the, you know, the time and place where I heard it all the time. And it makes me think of uh, my friends from, from back then. And I really, really enjoy going back and uh, seeing all of those friends and reminiscing. But, you know, because of COVID, um, I can't go home. And I don't know when I'll be able to go home um, next. I mean, a lot of people are going through that. Would you say it makes you homesick even now? Well, as you know, I had a serious bout of homesickness um, when I was 21 years old, but I've been living abroad now for um, about three decades. But as I told you in um, the first episode, it was sitting here at home, um, convalescing from knee surgery, that I started thinking about these old friends and why um, it was so important for me, or is so important for me, to, um, to try to see them every year. And I wondered if that was really normal. And that started me on this whole nostalgia trip, right? That's how Dale learned about Johannes Hofer, that Basel University medical student who got inspired by homesick soldiers back in the 1680s. That's almost exactly 300 years before Dale felt homesick on his first trip to Europe. Do you remember in the last episode how we went back um, in time to meet this guy? There came to my mind the stories of certain youths that, unless they had been brought back to their native land, whether in a fever or consumed by the wasting disease, they had met their last day on foreign shores. Hence, I judged that this disease deserved to be described and expounded more fully. He had seen just how homesick Swiss soldiers were, and so he decided to study and try to find out why. But he really didn't like the name homesickness, or as it was known then in, in Swiss German, Heimweh. Um, so he came up with a new name for it. Ah, yes, that's right, nostalgia. But as we have to remember, nostalgia is not the same as homesickness. Well, um, they're not now, but 
They were very closely related until just a few decades ago. And I met a guy who's done as much as anyone to define nostalgia or redefine nostalgia. Feelings, uh, reminiscence, rose-tinted glasses, uh, personal meaning, relationships, those are all very central features of nostalgia. So you be can begin to draw a, a description of what this emotion is. Susan, that's Tim Wildschut. He's a social psychologist at Southampton University in the UK. Um, I went there to meet him and to talk to him long before COVID shut down travel. I wanted to find out how nostalgia today really differs from homesickness and to understand if that's a good thing or a bad thing that I still long to see the people again who are my friends many, many, dare I say it, many, many, many years ago. On, what's Tim like? Well, quite soft-spoken, rather unassuming. It turns out he, like us, is an expat, uh, originally from Holland. He was a graduate student at uh, a university in the United States and has been living and working in the UK for the past several years. And um, he's quite nostalgic for his student years at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Ah, so you must have had a lot to talk about. If I went back to Chapel Hill, I would experience, all else being equal, experience more nostalgia than if I lived there, around there still. Mm -hmm. When I look at my, sort of my fellow um, alumni, I can think of one who's super nostalgic, but he's nostalgic about everything. But among the group, I'm probably most nostalgic for for graduate school okay. uh, and for the place itself. Simply put, he says that absence does make the heart grow fonder. Yes, but does it make sense to be living in the past? Susan, that's the million-dollar question. Here's what he told me. People will sometimes say, you know, you say nostalgia is positive, um, but uh, doesn't it also make you sad sometimes? And you say, well, yeah, it does, but... You know, imagine a, a hypothetical scenario where I offer to take all those memories and you'll never think of them again. You know, you won't experience the sadness. Would you want that? I heard him say there that nostalgia is actually a positive emotion. And that's a lot different from homesickness. In a paper that Tim wrote or co-authored, he describes how nostalgia, even up to the middle of the last century, was branded an immigrant psychosis. And here's a quote from that paper. It was called a monomaniacal obsessive mental state causing intense unhappiness. As an immigrant, and, and you too are an immigrant, Dale, that just sounds dreadful. I mean, I can't identify with it. I don't think I want to identify with some immigrant psychosis. So how have researchers like Tim proven that nostalgia is generally positive? Well, that's a really good question. It's essentially become a new research field only in this century. So clearly already by that time, this, this uh, more positive view of nostalgia of the word was in current. Tim and his colleagues in Southampton, they're among the most respected researchers in the field. 
They've introduced, for example, a widely accepted standard, which is a list of basic questions called the Southampton Nostalgia Scale. And they collaborate with academics around the world to conduct their research. The findings of their studies often come from questioning control groups of people. So they've got a nostalgia scale. That sounds pretty cool. How does that work? Well, with the scale, and then depending on the particular uh, focus of the study, they'll bring together groups. The two groups will be asked a series of questions, but only one of the groups will be asked to imagine a scene from their past before they answer. And there are countless papers on nostalgia published over the years. Just to give you an idea of how broad Tim's current research is, just in the past year, he's looked at whether people who are neurotic enjoy the same nostalgic benefits as those who are not. He's looked at how populist political parties can manipulate voters' nostalgia of a perceived common or what they think is a better past. And he's written about nostalgia experienced by Syrian refugees and even something called anticipated nostalgia. But Dale, I thought nostalgia was about looking back. How can you anticipate being nostalgic? That's right. That was my question that I put to Tim as well. Just imagine you're planning to do something in the future, knowing that it'll be something you'll eventually look back on fondly. So that's kind of how that anticipated nostalgia work. But most importantly, a key or a more important quality of nostalgia is the role it plays in what Tim calls self-continuity. Self-continuity is actually a, a very important prerequisite or ingredient for health, uh, psychological health and well-being. If you don't have that, if you feel like, uh, you know, everything's changing, I'm changing, who am I? Um, that, that is very, you know, has very poor. It's kind of an awareness of where I've been, where I am now, and giving me the confidence for where I'm going in the future. That's really what self-continuity is all about. And Susan, that's when I had my aha moment. I told Tim that I started playing floor hockey again in middle age. I realized how important it was to me because it was a sport I loved playing most in college. Well, what about you? Have you got a hobby that you've been doing for years? Something that gives you a, a sense of this um, self-continuity that I've been talking about? Well, something that I've been doing for years is Irish step dance. And that's something I started as a student and I've done it now in three different countries. And especially here in Switzerland, I'm, I'm very close to the group that I dance with. Yeah, it's something I can do every week and look forward to. And yeah, I guess it's part of my identity now. And it's not only things like that. Say you're getting to know a new work colleague. Um, if you talk to that person, I mean, this is what Tim told me. And I think it's true when I think about it. When you introduce yourself, have a chat, maybe have lunch for the first time with that person or just a coffee, and you tell him or her about a, a personal experience from your own life, um, let's say how you felt when you started at the company, well, that new person will likely see you as a warm individual and is willing to trust you. That's another side of nostalgia. It's, um, it increases our empathy. So let's add it all up. I'll have more self-confidence and people will be more empathetic towards me if I talk about my past. Yeah, the list goes on. When people are lonely, they uh, recruit nostalgia. And so loneliness leads to nostalgia, which is interesting in its own right. But, but, but is he saying that we should shout, hey, nostalgia, help me? 
No, it's really an unconscious reflex. Um, if we have close family and friends, and let's hope that we all do, we think of them and what it's like being together with them, and that provides um, that provides some comfort when we're away from them. Okay, so then we're more self-confident, more empathetic, and less lonely. Any other advantages? Yeah, I was hoping you would ask. There's one more thing, and I think this is the best yet. It's a lot of anecdotal evidence, you know, for example, that uh, people experience extreme starvation or extreme cold um, concentration camp uh, prisoners, that they would um, exchange um, recipes and talk at length about satisfying meals and being warm in front of the fireplace back home, which is really almost counterintuitive because you think that that would just make it seem worse where you presently are. But yet there's, you know, really strong evidence that this is what happened. Wow. Wow. So nostalgia is also part of our innate survival instinct. And Tim and his um, fellow researchers, they even tested the theory. And they found that if you put people in a cold room and tell them to think of a warm place they've been, say it was during a summer vacation, then they will imagine that the room temperature is actually higher than it really is. I think that is remarkable. All right, now so to sum it up and answer your question, you no longer have any reason to worry about spending so much time thinking about your college days or friends. Um, yeah, you know, when I think about when I became an adult, I had so many new and, and looking back, positive experiences, and they really did shape who I am now. Um, so it's really only normal that we think back to, to those times. Well, but to be honest, I still had, I was still worried about one thing. Yeah, what was that? Do you remember in episode one, how I talked about my homesickness when I was only 21 years old and cycling through Europe with my uh, college friend, Tony? Oh, I certainly remember, and I've been eager to hear more about the aftermath of that. You know, essentially, it's like going to do this adventure, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're ill in a way, yeah. which, in fact, you know, when you think about it, you were going on a bicycle, and your equilibrium was kind of messed up. Yeah. Well, I was always too embarrassed to ask him how he felt about me leaving him um, only 10 days into what was supposed to be our, our summer-long cycling adventure in Europe. I, am, I was homesick, and uh, he must have been really let down by me. Oh, yeah, probably. Am I wrong? Well, when I started looking into nostalgia, I did return to Toronto, I met up with him, and finally, after all these decades, I asked him. There are many things in that trip that, I guess, because you had the, uh, wow, you can hear frogs. Sounds like frogs. You know, I had never been to Europe. I think at that point, I had never even been on a plane. Mm -hmm. So, so it was like the whole trip was a series of firsts and I remember climbing a hill yeah and we were still not in great shape but there was a french fry truck Fritz. and I remember 
the man. I can even remember his face. It was like a, it was literally like a uh, like an ice cream truck, except he was selling French fries, which of course they still do today. Yeah, those trucks. yeah. And he leaned out, and he would you want mayonnaise with that? No yes. ketchup. It was mayonnaise, mayonnaise, and it was like like a novel idea. And they were like the best damn French fries. I don't remember that, but yeah. So after Luxembourg, that's when I was starting to have doubts about about the, the trip. I think you'd been mulling the decision over for a little bit because I think you'd days. sort of gone a bit silent for a couple of days. Okay. And then um, and then we got to Sarbo, and there were two people working at the post office. And it was the woman who sort of took us in, mm -hmm. and then uh, you left from there. You took mm -hmm. the train back to Paris, to Paris. Yeah. and um, she, I, I stayed with the family, had dinner with them, and then I went to the guy's house, oh. who was kind of a North American nut. Like yeah. he, he loved everything North American. Okay. So I spent. Um, I spent a couple of days there, and then when I left, he said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going towards Strasbourg. Yeah. And he said, oh, I have a good friend in Strasbourg. Let me ring him up for you, and then uh, you'll have a place to stay. So he rang his friend up, and he said, oh, my friend's going out of town for the weekend, but he's going to leave the key under the mat. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that? In your house. No. Someone's coming, you don't know. And and you know what? It's funny because that that sort of set the um, the tone? The tone for the trip in many ways. Wait, he doesn't sound bitter or angry? No, and I have to admit, his answer really caught me off guard because in a way, I wanted him to be angry. I wanted to apologize after all these decades and hear from him how disappointed he was with my decision to abandon him there in France. But he wasn't. In a way, he was making excuses for me. So when I left Tony, what I didn't realize, he had become open to making new friends because he was traveling on his own. And it was, really became a great, great trip for him. So you must feel like maybe you should have talked to Tony much earlier about that breakup. I wish I had. But I was so embarrassed. Homesickness, being that homesick is something you don't want to remember. But of course, I couldn't forget it. But if I had known about the power of nostalgia, I may have realized that Tony actually was nostalgic for that cycling adventure. And um, while I look back in embarrassment, or I used to anyways, he looks back with much better memories. I think of, you know, how sick I was at the beginning of the trip. I had allergies and how hard the cycling was and how homesick I was, of course. And he remembers all the friends he made. And not only that. And I remember in Belgium, and I guess because it was early spring and just how fragrant it was, the time of year. And I just remember, like, how beautiful it smelled in terms yeah. of, like, it was just so fragrant. Dale, later on, you returned to Europe, and you've actually been living here for a few decades now. But how did that happen? Well, thanks to all of this research I've been doing into nostalgia, I now realize that once I got over my homesickness, I became nostalgic for the little bit of Europe I had experienced. 
And that nostalgia was a factor, not the only one, but it was a factor, I think, really looking back now, that, that brought me back to Europe. So after a couple of years at home in Toronto, I saved up enough money to repeat the trip. This time I hitchhiked and took the train um, for a few months uh, across Europe. And a few years after that, I left Canada again on an open-ended uh, world tour, eventually meeting, I think you know her, um, mm -hmm. a Swiss woman who would become my wife. And that's how I came here. That's a great story. And what else have you learned on this journey? Well, it's really about being able to look back, to think about the choices I made in my distant past, and to understand them better. From my perspective as a much more, I'd like to think of myself as a much more mature person <laughs> in middle age. I mean, there's a wonderful quote in a novel by writer Michael Andace that sums it up. It's called Warlight. Can I show it to you? Yeah, should I read it? Oh, that'd be great. You return to that earlier time, armed with the present. And no matter how dark that world was, you do not leave it unlit. You take your adult self with you. It is not to be a reliving, but a re-witnessing. I'd also like to think that journeying back to our past is the antithesis of the journey of the youthful characters in another novel that I really like. That's Jack Kerouac's On the Road. There's a short um, passage, actually a dialogue between two of the, uh, two of the main protagonists in the book. And, and here's how it goes. Sal, we gotta go and never stop going till we get there. The response is, where are we going, man? I don't know, but we got to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, re I remember that. But what do you think it means? Well, later in life, I really wanted to travel back along that same road. And I think we often do if we admit it once we, once we get into middle age and beyond. And as Michael Ondaatje said um, in Warlight, it's about re-witnessing. And uh, I think traveling back along my road anyways, um, I do understand myself a little bit better and uh, for good or bad, the person that I am today. And it's been really great getting to know who you are better through this series. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We've learned a lot of new terms, things about anticipated nostalgia, nostalgia benefits, self-continuity. It's, it's been so interesting to get your perspective and a lot to think about. Well, thank you, Susan. It's been my pleasure. Are you reeling in the yeast? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the yeast? Have you had enough of mine? Are you reeling in the yeast? And that brings us to the end of our series on nostalgia. What about you? What makes you feel nostalgic or homesick even? We'd love to hear your stories. You can find us by looking for SwissInfo.ch on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Or send us an email at english at SwissInfo.ch. This series was produced by reporter Dale Bechtel and me, Susan Masika. Our music is by Michele Andina. Engineering is by Danny Wheeler. We'll be back in two weeks with a new topic, the dirty business of gold mining in Peru and why it's relevant for refineries in Switzerland. 
Subscribe to us to be sure you don't miss it. And while you're waiting, give our sister podcast a listen. It's called Inside Geneva, and it's about the big issues that people are discussing in Geneva, the global hub of humanity. From all of us at the Swiss Connection, thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Imogen Folks from Swiss Info's Inside Geneva podcast. On February 24th, 2022, Russia attacked Ukraine. The invasion caused Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. And during the year-long conflict, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people, soldiers and civilians have been killed. Over the past year, a number of episodes of Inside Geneva have looked at the heavy humanitarian toll of the war and its wider implications for the world. We've been joined by historians and international human rights experts to ask about the background to the invasion. We've talked to major UN aid agencies about how the war in Ukraine is impacting other humanitarian crises. And we've asked if sanctions or war crimes investigations can stop or at least limit this conflict. If you're particularly concerned by the war in Ukraine, do listen to these episodes. You can find Inside Geneva, free to listen, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all your usual podcast apps.